and welcome. I'm Jackie Mansky, and I'm an associate editor at Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free, and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like the one you're watching today. You can find us online at zocalopublicsquare.org, as well as on all the main podcast platforms. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like it, follow us, and subscribe. We're about to hear today from agricultural scientist Molly Jean, who is the program manager at the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. She will be discussing the possible paths to a future where food for all is assured. I'm thrilled to introduce Issues in Science and Technology Editor-in-Chief Daniel Sarowitz, who will be moderating today's event. Over to you, Dan. Square, my name is Dan Sarowitz. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Issues in Science and Technology. We're a quarterly magazine published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine and by Arizona State University. Uh, we're delighted to partner with Zogolo Public Square today to present today's conversation, What Does Food Security Really Mean? And joining me to address that question is Molly John, who recently wrote an article for Issues entitled Multiple Breadbasket Failure and How That Became a Policy Issue. And she describes uh, her long, fascinating journey um, to putting the issue of food security on the national defense and national security agenda. And we'll talk about that journey today. Uh, Molly's a plant breeder. Many of you probably have never met a plant breeder before. Uh, she's responsible for inventing dozens of commercially popular varieties of squash. If you've ever had a delicata, you can thank Molly for that as well as other produce, including uh, delicious melons. In recent years, she has turned her attention, though, to something bigger um, and more complicated still, which is global food system vulnerability. Uh, she was on the uh, faculty at Cornell's Department of Plant Breeding starting in about 1991 before becoming the Dean of the School of Agriculture and Life Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, in 2006. Uh, and then since that time, she's become more and more involved in these larger policy questions of food security and national security. And she's currently on assignment as a program manager in the Defense Sciences Office at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, where she's taking on the problem of improving long-term resilience of the U.S. food system. Molly, it is really great to see you. Uh, I'm really uh, happy that we have this excuse to, uh, to chat today. So thanks for making time to do that. Certainly my pleasure, and it's wonderful to be doing it from DARPA because my living room doesn't look nearly this cool. Yeah, it's really cool, right, right. So DARPA's the, the, the yes, the, the uh, definition of cool. And let me just say for the audience's uh, um, uh, benefit or background that uh, I first ran into Molly um, uh, because we are both on an advisory committee for NASA's Applied Sciences um, uh, division. And um, at those meetings, you often get very short lunch breaks. And and every time I had a lunch break at these meetings over a couple of years, I would have these incredibly interesting, but frustrating because they were only 10 minute long conversations with Molly, where I quickly began to see um, two things. First, that she and I shared a, a really strong commitment to the idea that, that science is not this ivory tower um, 
uh, activity that's, that's best done in isolation from society, but actually is a social activity and is done most productively from a scientific and social perspective uh, when the links between research and society are strong and vibrant. Um, but the other thing I came to realize was that she was doing something really interesting and hard, which was she was actually trying to change the national agenda, the national defense agenda, to get it to focus on the question of food security. Um, and so we're going to talk about that and about that journey. But first, I just want to want to talk a little bit about about um, your deeper roots, as it were, uh, as a as a plant breeder. You and I were both at, at Cornell at around the same time as graduate students in the in the early 80s. Um, and uh, I was in the engineering school across town from where you were at the agriculture school. And we never talked to each other uh, because our sort didn't mix with your sort, which says a little something about how science often gets stuck in its disciplinary stove stovepipes. So tell me a little bit about, um, talk a little bit about how you became a, a plant breeder, because when you initially started graduate school, that was not really where you were headed. So what's plant breeding all about and why was it attractive? Well, it, it goes back further than uh, even my undergraduate. I. Uh, I was ill as a teenager and um, then was and was actually mistakenly given a terminal diagnosis and then <laughs> ah, actually <laughs> just kidding you're going to be okay I got very interested in how systems heal and what it meant to heal um, I, I had a fairly uh, while I wasn't in the process of dying well we're all in the process of dying I wasn't dying but I had a lot of healing to do and I got really interested in in um, how that worked. Um, and instead of becoming an MD, I went to, uh, I got really fascinated by the sort of elegance and beauty and mystery of biology. And I remain that way uh, today. Uh, I landed at, um, fortunate for me, a small liberal arts school um, and uh, promptly placed out of intro bio landed in genetics as my first undergraduate biology course. And uh, oh, it was, it was, and it was genetics. It was, it was really fascinating. I loved it. Took my first test. I got a 48. You still remember. <laughs> so, so well. Yeah, not a 49. <laughs> yeah, actually, this is my, now it's 48. I'll never forget. So the professor said, you know, uh, if you, uh, anybody who got a D, C or F, which seemed to be most of us, you have to come talk to me. So I went and talked to him and he said, did you study? And I said, yes, I studied, I studied. And he said, are you a freshman? And I said, yeah. And he said, I hate it when they let freshmen in here. <laughs> Not off to an auspicious beginning, but he let me work as a technician and he let me come in and talk to him every week hmm. until I got a B plus in that class. And I have to say one of the sweetest moments in my professional career was when Swarthmore College gave me an honorary doctorate of science Sweet. in 2015. Sweet. And I got to tell that story yeah. to an assembly of graduating seniors, all of whom could one way or the other relate to that story. Yeah. And, um, and, and while that might not seem an auspicious beginning to a career in genetics, it actually was because it forced me to build up from fundamentals. And so I uh, wasn't very sophisticated about graduate school, wasn't even sure I was going to go to graduate school, but said genetics professor uh, pulled me aside and he said, I've done you a lot of favors, you got to do me too. One is you have to apply to at least one graduate school and you have to apply for an NSF graduate fellowship. 
So I went down in my basement and I wrote up a fellowship proposal that I'm still really interested in today, this about this fascinating kind of creature called cyanobacteria. And I went off to MIT Department of Biology. And let me just which, explain, since you're too modest to say this, uh, because many of our listeners may not know, uh, viewers may not know what an NSF fellowship is, but uh, the National Science Foundation provides a rather small number of four or five year fellowships, full freight provided uh, for really promising graduate students in a variety of fields. It's really a way to make sure that um, good people who may not otherwise be able to afford grad school get to go and don't get distracted uh, because they don't have to teach. They don't have to do research tasks for professors to earn their living. They can just focus on what they're up to. So you went off to MIT with one of these uh, fellowships, which is pretty cool. Which was awesome for me and for all the reasons you've just described. But there was one other really awesome thing about the NSF fellowship. I launched into genetics at arguably the top rated biology department of, at the time uh, to do genetics. And because of the, the state of the field at that time, we were just integrating some advanced biochemical methods that had to do with gene sequence. So had to do with- genetics. Can I ask, were you interested in agriculture and plants at that point? Or was this all just science for science? I loved, I, I grew up knowing a lot about plants because in my background were two plant breeders, but I didn't, I didn't know anything about doing plant breeding as a career. I didn't really even make the connection between genetics and plant breeding. I, I didn't, had no background, no academic background in agriculture per se. So I went off to uh, graduate school with exactly where you started this interview in mind. I really was committed to trying to use my science for the purpose of I, environmental issues have always been a major motivation for me. So I had this dream that I was somehow gonna, gonna uh, actually I had it all worked out even, that's how I got the graduate, the graduate fellowship, how that was all gonna work, but it didn't work like that at all in graduate school. It never does, like that no. Mm -mm. So I went home, uh, I could already tell it wasn't going to work like that by the midpoint of my first year. The Can I just ask, this is because of the sort of standard indoctrination process, the hazing process of graduate education? Was that what it was? Yeah, it was. It was also at the time and still is to some very large extent a very, very reductionist department. Right. Yeah. And yeah. even then I rebelled. Um, so it's really hard to see the connection between what you were doing and your desire to actually do something in the world, right? Yeah. 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 So I came home, read this chapter about my double great grandfather and uh, his sons, uh, several of whom were famous plant breeders. And I thought- we're, 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 They were Canadian, right? Canadian. Yep. So um, one of them, he, and he did it for the love of it. He loved plants. He loved, um, he loved botany. Were they formally loved, trained? Were they farmers? Were they both? The, the uh, great grandfather came over. He was the, I think, eighth son of a shoemaker from Devonshire, <laughs> but he grew every single thing that you could make grow in London, Ontario. And then he had five sons and a daughter and he made those sons get out there and pollinate for him. And uh, so everyone had to learn how to play a musical instrument and they had to learn how to do something practical with generally with plant breeding or natural history. And only one of them was actually dragged into becoming a professional plant breeder. And that was the one that really wanted to write French poetry and play the cello. 
<laughs> the others were pharmacists or my uh -huh. great grandfather was a physics professor. Uh, there was a chemistry professor, but the one that wanted to play the cello and write French poetry got dragged in to help his father breed a world famous wheat variety wow. that opened up the Western plains of Canada for settlement and, and changed the course of the, of, of the country of Canada. And so I, <laughs> back this was before you, the you, have, you have plant genetics in your genes basically you're not the first person to observe uh, that sure that's true so, <laughs> are you saying that was exceedingly unclever of me i know so. still i i there was one department of plant breeding that was called department of plant breeding at the time and so that was at cornell so i was the the other really important thing about that graduate fellowship is that I could take it with me That's if I me. left the graduate school I started at, I could bring it with me and I brought it with me to Cornell Department of Plant Breeding. They weren't particularly familiar with this kind of graduate fellowship. They really weren't familiar with somebody fresh off the boat from MIT, but I was entranced. I was just entranced. Twice a week, I got to go out in the, in the, in the, for my lab in the afternoon. I took plant taxonomy, which meant I got to run around the woods learning plants. Yeah. I was in heaven. And uh, three and a half years later or so, they made me professor in that department. You know, I, I can totally relate because I, I was a geologist and, you know, we you'd just go out the back door of our building down into the gorge there and look at rocks. It was fantastic. So the connection between the reductionist study and the world out there was very palpable for for both of us and i think that that's a really powerful experience you know that a lot but of I scientists never continues, get it continues to inspire throughout a career it continues yeah. to refresh and it continues to inspire but let me ask you what what um tell me if you agree with this it it does seem like there's a sort of a status thing though right it's like biology is about molecular biology and it's about, you know, it's about DNA and it's about genes and it's about proteomics and all this other stuff. Plant breeding is somehow, you know, it doesn't, it does not occupy this, this place on the scientific hierarchy along with those other fields, which is really weird because all you guys do is feed the world. <laughs> That's right. And in fact, as I, when I finally got up the courage to tell one of my favorite professors that I was leaving Cornell, I mean, leaving MIT to go to Cornell. He said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going, I want to study plant breeding. And he said, what a shame. You yeah, showed right. such promise. Right. <laughs> right. You could spend your life publishing papers that no one's read. No one but read. I have to tell you a really great story. However many years later, I'm undersecretary of agriculture and I'm home for the weekend and I pick up this chatter back and forth between the secretary of agriculture and his office saying some guy from the National Academies wants to come over and present to the secretary this uh, report that they've just issued on the importance of life sciences um, in, in the 21st century. And I realized the some guy was, your was my professor. And in the meantime, he picked up a Nobel Prize. And so I said to the secretary, I'll take that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so there I was greeting my professor from MIT at the door of the US Department of Agriculture. I don't think he'd ever been there before. Yeah. As an undersecretary of agriculture with him bringing me this report from the National Academies about how important agriculture was gonna be in the 21st century. Oh, funny. The circle was closed. <laughs> 
Score. Yeah. Did, did, yeah, right. did he the... say, well, you were right after all? So. <laughs> you know, so look, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> we had so look, a lovely look, moment. I have to say we have, we had a lovely moment there. That's nice. That's nice. That's good. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think there is an increasing recognition that, um, that there's really no valor in, in, in being isolated in your own little field. You know, so. Yeah. And I think um, you're right. It, you know, in a sense, plant breeding is a trade. It is much more, Dan and I were talking about this. It's much more like engineering than science. It didn't dawn on me until I was pretty far along that I was fascinated by virus resistance in plants. And I was especially interested in it because I knew plants didn't have an immune system. And in those days, we needed to really work on very simplified genetic systems in order to understand these really molecular details. But it never dawned on me that no one understood that that plant breeders not only didn't know that we didn't understand the genetic basis for viral symptoms or resistance to them, they didn't necessarily care. And they were still able to work with that set of characteristics magnificently change the course of human history, but they didn't necessarily understand the mechanisms and that has been a big lesson because when I read, we have to understand da in order to do da, I always check those assumptions. Well, and it's interesting because this is a very widely held belief is that you start out with fundamental knowledge and then apply it. Actually, the opposite is very often true. You figure out how to do something and then you try to figure out why it works. And so this is really important and many scientists, in fact, I'd say our national science model doesn't really fully embrace that those connections and feedbacks so let's just just tell me a little bit about plant plant breeding before we kind of move on the scale get up a little scale of of kind of um, applications a little bit you know how do you how do you make a squash you decide one day zucchini's not good enough for me um or well or these this butternut squash is too fibery what do you you know what do you do so it's always uh, it traditional plant breeding is all about the the starting material. So uh, it takes a keen eye and uh, generally a willingness to sort of forge out beyond what is familiar. So I picked vegetables. I picked vegetables because I knew they were underinvested. They were important in the United States. They're also very important around the world, um, especially in food insecure regions. And uh, because where they are grown in the developed developing world, they are often considered women's crops. And so I- What does that mean exactly? It means that uh, in some cultures, uh, there are male crops and female crops. So male crops might be the cereals, female crops might be horticultural. Meaning who tends, you're talking about who tends them, who who raises them? Who tends them, who keeps the money when the crops are so- Ah, really? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, So I was interested in vegetables for a number of reasons, not the least of which, was uh, they they were considered to be much less important. And therefore I always go for the wide open spaces and I always go for the edge and vegetables were considered sort of an edge. They're also beautiful. Yeah. And it turns out in, this is a little bit before America became completely obsessed with, you know, having half a dozen and a half different kinds of apple varieties by name in the store, right? It hadn't quite happened yet. Um, and I found the, connection between aesthetics and science just so much fun 
And I always say to students who are thinking about going on in science, number one, the thousandth time you do anything, it becomes routine by definition. So you better love it for other reasons than it yeah. sure seems cool the first two or three times, um, because you'll probably get over that if you're lucky. Um, and so for me, there was, I'd, I'd also loved electron microscopy when I was at MIT, MIT for the same reason. It was this connection between the science and aesthetics. So um, plant breeding is tremendously creative, especially if one is in a set of crops where you're not extremely yoked to yield. And so uh, our commodity crops are very much that way, but vegetables are not. And so I did another thing. I, I like to eat a lot of different ones, mm -hmm. these vegetables. So we did something very unusual for plant breeding programs of their time, of the, of the, of the time. And we ate what we bred, believe it or not, because, and we made it taste good. And then- Wasn't well, that the idea though? Can I just ask? I mean, I, this is kind think. of, I mean, how do you decide- what you're going to try to to improve upon or what traits you're going to try to develop presumably one of the things you'd have to do is eat right well you'd think so but those who eat are not the ones that actually purchase vegetable seed and so already a systems thinker i was interested in the whole system yeah and uh many fields uh even now, but especially then we're really linear so if i'm a plant breeder then my product is a seed if my product is a seed and my customer is the purchase is the person who purchases the seed, not that person's customer. Yeah. So we bred for things. Uh, we bred for characteristics that our first order customers loved and our second order customers might not love like hard tomatoes. So just to, to yeah, that's what I was going to say. So, so that's why we have tomatoes that are hard and taste not very good because they're easy to ship. <laughs> right. You right, they bounce ship. off yeah. the top of a yeah. tractor trailer yeah. and can't, if you've ever been behind one of those in, yep. in uh, Davis, Cal Yellow County, right. uh, California, you know, it goes bling, 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 right? That's really and amazing. processing huh. tomatoes. So plant, so breeders, plant breeders are not trained to think like the consumer. They're trained to think like the middle person, the farmers well, or the suppliers. Well, plant the breeders and this is, I can say this because I'm still engaged in plant breeding training programs. Often plant breeding program or plant breeders are not trained to think a lot in general um, about the system as a whole. Yeah. So we're given targets like tradespeople are, and I'm, my job is to hit that target. My job is not to overthink what my customer told yeah. me they yeah. want. Now, one thing in, I was so lucky coming in from MIT because there were just a whole lot of rules I never learned. And those have been really, really important pieces of my career. I never learned that I, as a plant breeder, I'm not supposed to talk to my customer. I'm supposed to let the extension agent talk to my customer. I had never heard of extension agents. I didn't know any better. Turns out all the, my extension agents had all been cut by budget cuts you know, before I ever got there. But my field was still acting like they were there, even though they weren't. So, so it was things like that. I I didn't know. Well, I didn't. Well, know so this this led to to a, um, a kind of a different way to think about plant breeding, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, as a more kind of community oriented kind of participatory activity. Um, well, uh, one thing I did was I uh, borrowed tactics used in the developing world, uh, which because of lack of infrastructure, um, 
many workarounds had been devised like participatory approaches to plant breeding. They didn't have um, nearly the professionalized infrastructure. Yeah. But what that also meant was that you had uh, a net, it, these were network plays. And so starting uh, pretty early in my career, I got really interested in what it meant to be working in networks, not pipelines, and then to leverage the power of networks not pipeline this is a really interesting difference in perspective just and just to point out a couple things one is so the innovation in this case came from your understanding more about developing world plant breeding so you could import their system back here to our industrialized model um and right. and the other is how um thinking in these linear terms which is the way we organize everything right that reinforces stove piping um, which in some sense really disenfranchises, say, consumers, right, uh, from the whole process of creating products that they might actually want, which is sort of unbelievable. It, 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 it means that they, in some way that no one would have imagined, they lack a voice where they could have a voice. And you were giving, you, so you're well, giving voice to people who eat. And it disenfranchises, I would argue, the scientists themselves. And fortunately, it's not just yeah. me. Max Weber felt this as yeah. well. Yeah. Because what happens is when you're trapped in that small a frame and we haven't equipped our, our trainees to think from first principles, our students don't know how to check their assumptions. Right. So right. when they receive evidence of some sort of dissonance or even a spark of creativity, they're not in a position to kick off from the party line and do something different. I had the, you know, the benefit of not having that party line. I didn't know the party line. So I thought when they told me nobody would ever like a little baby butternut, I thought, I think those little baby butternuts are really cute. I'd like a little <laughs> baby butternut <laughs> or delicata. Nobody had even heard of delicata in those days. It was going yeah. out of it was going out of fashion because you couldn't grow the stuff. Um, if you ever did get a fruit, it could be delicious, but mostly you didn't get any fruit at all. Um, and, and I just thought it tasted the one little fruit I got, I thought it tasted delicious and I didn't care that it was oblong and green and white. I thought that was cool. And then we did it. Then we were able to leverage a trick where we put a wrapper around the trait high quality that a consumer can identify and purchase. And that's delicata, yeah. but we also made sure there was something in it for the grower, we put it on a much more compact plant. It was disease resistant, which turned out to also give it a lot better eating quality. We crossed in much prettier, deeper flesh. So we brought in acorn squash flesh, all of this by traditional uh, crossbreeding. Mm -hmm. um, and so we generated this thing called Cornell's Bush Delicata um, that didn't look a bit like the old delicata except in fruit type and even when you cut it it had that delicious nutty flavor yeah. but otherwise instead of thin muddy colored yellow flesh it had this gorgeous so this orange is flesh. this is really cool and and just to to kind of put an exclamation point on it and then i want to kind of move into the next phase of network complexity what allowed you to do this is that you didn't think like a siloed scientist. You could put your head in the space of what the consumer was thinking, but you were also thinking about the farmers. You were also thinking about the seed companies, and you were thinking about how they all connect to each other. And you kind of recognized a common commonality of interest there that's lost when you have this pipeline model. So this and leads me to 
Go ahead. And let me just put in a plug for MIT. I learned how to think at MIT. So when I was presented with an answer that did not, that I could not understand, I kept asking the question. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something they taught me at MIT. Yeah. Because plant breeding is, is conservative as a practice, right? Generally. Like any trade, yeah, like right. any trade, yeah. and yeah. you know, to some extent, rightly so, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, this is the problem: is there's reasons why you get these cultural behaviors around, say, basic science or more applied science, but nonetheless, they can be very uh, restricting. All right, so you're a network thinker, um, and somehow you go from thinking about how to make delicious, beautiful, cute squash to exactly. also to beginning to think about the food system as a whole, farmers and the kind of plight of American farmers, the growth of the scale of American farms, and you begin to kind of get an intuition that there's a problem here. How did, the, how did, you, how did you arrive at that? Well, uh, there were, it was uh, incremental and um, there was a fundamental, um, a fundamental structure, which was that I viewed my career as an experiment. So I began to get information that gave me concern and it came in, in, uh, came in various ways. Uh, one of which was I, I did something I had really wanted to do. I wanted to win an all America selections gold medal. And I did, I was so excited. And I'll never forget getting the call and they said, you just won. And I was like, <gasps> and then I picked up this little brown packet of seed in my other hand and I looked at the receiver and they started talking about licensing and, you know, tons of seed. Mm. And I looked at my little hundred seed in my little brown envelope and I thought, I have no idea what mm. comes next. Yeah. <laughs> like no idea. So in order to deliver on that, I had to learn a lot about what, what was the prize? What was the prize for, by the way, what, what variety? It was for Cornell's Bush Delicata. My oh, first All okay. America was for that okay. variety, okay. Right. Um, okay. because it, among other things, it was it was an open pollinated variety that beat out all the best commercial hybrids. So it beat cool. the best hybrids at their own games, and it wasn't it wasn't familiar. Okay, so you how know, does that how does that then get you to thinking about what's the pathway to thinking about? Well, but then security? I realized, wow, this uh, this my instrument of change here with all due respect of what a great squash variety is, is, it's a squash variety, right? And, you know, world peace squash variety, world peace squash variety, like I realized I was missing some steps. Um, fast forward some experiences, uh, I started breeding in and for organic agriculture systems in addition to conventionally managed systems. And those systems tend to be very, uh, that's where I really, learned, although I didn't have the language about systems thinking, was working with and for organic agriculture. Mm. Then we had an experience in uh, the mid-aughts where I, by this time I get called in as a sort of, you know, vegetable breeder swap team, you know, crises around the world. There's a white fly transmitted disease wiping out West African tomato production. Mm. So we come in and we're told by USAID, here are the methods you should use because this will build capacity in these countries. But by this time I'd gotten very focused on just getting stuff done. So I thought, mm, you know, I don't know that all that white fly resistance that we've been working with for 20 years doesn't work in West Africa. And I'd really like to find that out. So uh, 
I, I, I said to AID, you're going to need trialing networks anyway. We're going to have to trial whatever it is we come out with. So we're going to leverage these sorghum trialing networks that my friend who taught me about participatory agriculture had all over West Africa. And I'm going to, you're going to let me do a little telephone breeding. That is, I'm going to get on the telephone and I'm going to call my friends and seed companies by, because by this time I had them and I'm going to strike a deal with them. And I'm going to say, we're going to trial your variety for free all across West Africa, as long as you agree to some sort of a rate to consider an arrangement that would allow us to license that variety in that region. If your variety is a hit, lo and behold, we had a hit. We restored tomato production very quickly. And we swamped out mm. the tomato markets. Mm. And I got these three photographs because by this time I'd got the formula down. So I had two more NSF graduate fellows in my lab, both of whom had gone to see what was happening in West Africa at the time. And they sent me back these photographs. I show any chance I get. And in my systems thinking class, we call this the tomato parable. Um, there were so many tomatoes. Now we thought about this because we're paying attention. There was a tomato cannery in West Africa, but what we hadn't really taken the time, and this is another thing, we do a lot with snapshots. We're not so good with systems dynamics. Yes, there was a tomato cannery. Yes, it could accommodate the harvest. No, it did not have electricity. Yeah. And the tomatoes rotted on the loading dock. And I looked at those photographs and I said, yeah. I have just proven that markets work at the expense of very vulnerable people. Yeah. And I'm gonna figure out, I'm gonna do something different from here on. And that's how we came to be having this conversation right now. Because okay. I did a pivot and began to think about what it was I was really after in systems. It wasn't raw abundance. Yeah. It wasn't just- So this is abundance. a huge, it, well, it's two things. It wasn't raw abundance. It also wasn't raw efficiency, right? Because, no. because the whole system is about increased productivity. Um, right. so, so let's pull back and talk about the US context. Right? So, so, you, so you have these insights in Africa that markets might be smart, but that doesn't mean they don't screw poor people. Um, and, uh, and, and volume might be great, but that doesn't mean that we're in a position to make use of it to benefit people. So, so then, meanwhile, you have this insight about what's going on in the US where you have these gigantic farms that are basically only made possible because of, of uh, the subsidy pro government subsidy programs. You have farmers who are producing more and more uh, commodity products um, and yet doing less and less well for themselves. Um, what's what some something obviously clicked in terms of then connecting that to to a, a broader security issue what what was the insight there well it was um by this time i was really becoming quite rigorous about checking my assumptions when i when i got an anomaly that is more tomatoes did not equal nirvana all the time i checked my assumptions <laughs> like why would we ever think that that would be yeah. the case yeah and um there's a trend, if one looks at the dynamics of systems, there's a trend that is uh, really pronounced in modern life uh, in a whole host of areas from casket manufacturers to vegetable seed companies, and that's consolidation. So driving at efficiency, driving at productivity, when we use those as our North Stars, we tend to drive systems to, we tend to drive uh, diversity 
out because that's not a well, property. Adam, that Adam Smith got this, right? right? So right, yeah. and uh, and so that's fine if you're not concerned with properties of the system that have to do with the perform the the, yeah. the functions of diversity in that system, like resilience or stability, right? Yeah. Um, we made a fundamental error in equating abundance with stability. So, so there's, that, a, there's a tension, obviously, between um, uh, efficiency and abundance and resilience. That's really what you're right. talking about. And yet, but, right. but it's hard not to say at the same time um, to, to look, at, look at, and in some sense, you, you, you acknowledge this in your article for us, um, that in many ways, though, the, the, the U.S. food system, at least in terms of feeding Americans and America at very affordable prices, has been unbelievably successful, right? It has, but it also doesn't mean that our food system is performing at anything like an acceptable level in the United States, even pre-COVID. So when I was undersecretary, the number was somewhere between one in five and one in seven American children were food insecure. That's just but, unacceptable. But that's also, right? a, that's a separate issue as Amartya Sen taught us several decades ago, a very separate issue from the from the volume, from the productivity and efficiency. It issue, is, right? but I did not as a plant breeder excuse myself from that issue. Cool. That's the yeah. difference. Yeah, right. And so we call the hypothesis that if I only had more, everything's going to be great. In my systems thinking class, we call it the more, more, more is better, better, better hypothesis. And it might've made a lot of sense when President Lincoln was designing this early professionalized research system in the, you know, around the time of the Civil War. But we've asked and answered that question and we don't like the answer we've gotten because under the lens of more, more, more is better, better, we've gotten more, all right. We've gotten more commodity we were interested in. We've yeah. also gotten all the collateral consequences amped up at the same time, so we've driven these the human Earth system outside historical precedent. Everything from so soil loss to the dead zone of the Gulf of Mexico to diabetes, activated obesity. phosphorus, activated nitrogen, right. yeah. heat, yeah. Yeah. active active carbon in the met so methane, temperature, humans, you know, cal size of humans. It's all that we're just pushing so now, way too much energy into the human Earth system and. That's a national security problem. Okay, so so, what is the nature of the? It sounds it sounds very complex. All sorts of things going on. All sorts of consequences. How do you reduce that national security um, problem to something where you can actually get some traction on uh, so, on addressing it on on mitigating it? And this maybe gets so, to what we started out talking about. So I got to be a dean for a while, and I always joke about dean school because, of course, there isn't any such thing. No, there isn't. But um, they teach you things in dean school like follow the money, right? And uh, and they teach you, um, at least they, they uh, I learned being dean that, a, that I got to claim some sort of even private victory if I came up with an accurate diagnosis for what was going on, because often what presents itself in the Dean's office is not really what's really going on. And so when I got an accurate diagnosis, I always got to do a little, a little dance, even if what was still in front of me looked pretty dire. It was, uh, I hate to tell you how uh, 
long it took me to come up with a really obvious insight. By this time, I had been pulled into climate change as a threat to food security and food security as a threat to national security and you know, trying to, to mitigate uh, the damage in large systems that we designed very much on purpose to be basically right. exactly like they were, yeah. right? And and I, I realized actually attending a friend's induction into the Royal Society in London, he's Mr. Photosynthesis. He was standing talking to Stephen Chu, who was at that time- Former Secretary of Energy. Secretary of Energy. We were also standing talking to a man who had made his mark in diabetes research, diabetes and obesity research. And at this moment, the four of us realized that through our whole careers, we'd all been looking at energy. Yeah. And that actually the ills, many of these large scale ills of the world directly go back to pushing too much energy into the earth human system mm -hmm. for, for what it can handle. Another way to think about that, and there's a wonderful uh, PNAS article that has a ball of rock with a little, it's, it, it, it's a battery. The battery's been trickle charged around the sun for however many billion years. Yep. And this one species showed up and decided to discharge that We're battery. Discharging it into the atmosphere, right? Yeah. Into yeah. us, yeah. the atmosphere, yeah. the water. And suddenly all these whack-a-mole problems collapsed down to thermodynamics right yeah so let's and let's let's just can, can you just back off and let's make that a little more transparent for for those sure. uh viewers who haven't taken physical chemistry um so <laughs> so what you're really saying is um that that uh, tell me if this is right that without attending at all to the systems level consequences we are basically su supercharging um, the Earth's environment with all the energy inputs that we're driving into it without thinking about what the consequences might be, whether that's CO2 into the atmosphere, whether that's right. phosphorus in the ground, whether it's it's uh, fertilizers into our rivers, all of that amounts to energy that's simply being pushed into the system without thinking about consequences. So exactly. we've only got a couple of minutes left. Now what you're going to have to do is, is, is tell me how you quickly got there to um, uh, section 10, section 1075 of the National Defense Authorization Act. In other words, how does this very scientific sounding insight about thermodynamics and energy in the Earth system get translated into something that policymakers can get their teeth into? How did you manage that? Well, I became interested in examples where human beings made very difficult change. Um, and it turns out that transparency about the problem is really important for human beings making change. It's not sufficient, but it is necessary. And, um, and so I uh, went to the grownups in Washington, D.C. that I could find at the time. And, and time and time again, I found the most ardent humanitarians, the most... Uh, enthusiastic environmentalists and the savviest uh, systems thinkers in the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I took it upon myself my experience too. Yeah. to learn how to teach myself how to make my case to these colleagues. They were reaching for me at the same time. We, we had a concern uh, in our national security strategy on violent non-state actors at the time. Violent non-state actors often control areas by controlling the food system. Mm. We'd fought Iraq 
there was there were a lot of people coming back who had experience with food systems in a national security context. And so then when in doubt, I, I checked my history. I found the book uh, called A Taste of War by Lizzie, Lizzie Collingham. It's the history of food in World War II. And I really, I've given away probably 150 copies of that book, um, including to a senator I happened to run into in the airport, as I describe in, uh, in the in piece. She took a look at that. You're also, you're also, I might say, an, an unbelievably energetic um, connector of different network nodes, everything from Lloyds of London to generals to senators to people who are, who are I, who you're not allowed to tell us their names. Um, so somehow you managed to um, corral this incredibly complex network and end up with um, new language and a new definition of national security or new con con contribution to how we define it um, where there was none before. I can just say to our I audience. To dial it back. I got report language in a in the National Defense Authorization Act, which I have to say, I'm going to regard as, that as a triumph. As, <laughs> as a former congressional staffer, I'll tell you report language is everything um, uh, yeah. because it might not be in the law, but it's actually what 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 uh, people in the agencies look at when they try to understand how to interpret things. So we're actually going to have to wrap up here. Um, and uh, the first thing to be said is it's fabulous to talk to you. The second thing to be said is, and I hope our audience agrees that um, uh, we could go on for another hour, um, but we're not going to. Uh, if you really want to find out the additional details to how Molly put food security on the national defense agenda, you can look at and the I latest. I didn't do it by myself. You did not, all. and you're, you are unselfish in, in uh, attributing credit all around your network. Nonetheless, you are a galvanizing catalytic force. Um, we're all fortunate that you're out there doing this stuff. Good luck at DARPA. Well, my mom told me I'd never amount to anything, and that was probably the best thing ever because oh, thanks. I wasn't thanks, mom. to take risks. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to close. Um, thanks, Molly. It was fun as always i look forward to our next conversation thanks to everybody watching uh thanks for joining us you can visit zocalo's website zocalopublicsquare.org for a summary of our talk uh, plus interviews with molly and with me um, other conversations like this one past and future and you can also visit uh, issues.org the issues in science and technology ma uh, magazine website to find Molly's uh, article and get uh, all of the additional details that we didn't have time to cover. So thanks everybody. Thanks Molly, see you around and uh, take care. And thanks to all of my friends that made this, this particular thing that brought me to Dan's attention possible. Bye-bye everybody. <laughs>